I want to do three things today. Uh, I want to tee up our series for this term um, all the way through the summer up to focus. We're going to be looking at the, the creed. We're going to be unpacking the creed. And I um, see. I thought what we'd do is we're going to get the creed up in a minute. The, the apostles, it's known as the Apostles' Creed. And um, traditionally, churches um, recite the creed. They say it's something they say out together. It's a kind of statement of faith that we do corporately. So we'll do that in just a moment. And I, I want to say a little bit, a few words of introduction about the creed. What is it? How did we come to have it? Uh, but basically, you can kind of Google stuff and, and find that all online. If you're interested, come and see me or Pat. We, we sort of went through lectures and lectures on that kind of stuff in church history. Um, but we don't necessarily want to spend loads of time on that now. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, second thing, about belief. Because the, the creed comes from, the word creed comes from credo, Latin for I believe. And uh, the creed be- begins, I believe, dot, dot, dot. And that's really the name of our series, I believe, in a, a series of things. And we want to unpack what it is that Christians down the ages have believed. So I want to talk a little bit about belief. And then I, I want to look at that first line in the creed today. And um, I believe in God the Father. And uh, to unpack that. And just to say, what I hope we'll do, that the aim for this series is as we go through these statements and unpack them, we, what we will do is to begin to scratch and uncover core Christian doctrine, core things that Christians have believed down the ages that have substantiated their faith, that have fed individual Christians and churches. If you like, it's the foundation on which all that we understand ourselves to be and all that we do, it's the foundation we're based on. So today, the doctrine of adoption um, when we say, I believe in God the Father, um, what do we mean by that? And, and to unpack something of the, the doctrine of adoption. Uh, and there'll be others as we go through. We, we, we make statements of faith to Jesus Christ. We'll be unpacking justification and atonement when we, uh, and redemption. When we unpack um, statements to do with the Holy Spirit and uh, our pneumatology, how, how it is that sanctification works for us. We'll be thinking about the resurrection uh, and we'll be thinking about um, the life everlasting, heaven and hell. There's all sorts of uh, a range of opinions on, on that whole topic. The forgiveness of sins. There's a whole load of statements that we declare, Christians declare in the creed. Where are we on that? How much thinking have you given to that? Do you, when you say, I believe, do you really believe in these statements that the church through the centuries have given as a central and core to what it stands for, what it believes in. So um, a little bit on the creed, a little bit on belief, um, and then on the doctrine of adoption. So we've got quite a bit, bit to do this evening. You up for it? Yeah. Why don't we stand together, and let's have the, let's have the creed on the, on the screen. And why don't we, as uh, I want to charitably assume as, as Christians here this evening, let's uh, recite the words of the creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Actually, can we just keep that last slide up as you take a seat again? Just a second one. Thank you. Um, it's always quite nice to get sort of affirmation on what you, you, you think is a good idea to preach on. And this morning we had a baptism. And as part of the baptismal liturgy, there is a sort of a, a, another, a, an abridged version of the creed. But it has that line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I had two, two, two visitors come up. One, one said, um, is, is this a Protestant church? And I said, yes, it is. And I could see where he was going. So because in the thing you said Catholic. And then someone else came up later on, unrelated, and just said, um, is this a Catholic church? I, I said, no, it isn't. And he said, well, because in the thing we said, so I thought, yeah, let's, uh, I mean, just to deal with that one, Catholic small c is just another word for universal or worldwide. So what we're saying then, we're not saying we're a Roman Catholic church as distinct from a Protestant church. What we're saying is, I believe in the holy worldwide church. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. So that's just toppence for that one. You've got one there. You can leave now if you're, you're happy with that. The creeds. <laughs> So Jesus Christ, AD, ran about, I don't know, 33 or so. He rises into heaven, leaves, 12 apostles, off you go, grow the church. And uh, Peter's first sermon, 3,000 added to their number. They baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus commanded. And what were they baptizing them into? So they kind of developed this little shorthand. They had these little statements of belief. Do, do you believe in God the Father? Yes. Jesus Christ, his Son? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. And uh, so those little statements kind of, they, they were good enough for the first few decades of the Christian church and it spread and it grew. And, uh, you know, after a while, you, you've got the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch and the church in Ephesus saying, well, hang on, is this all joined up as, as the church is growing? Is there kind of some central understanding of what it is that we all believe? And to cut a long story short, and it was several centuries later, when this Christian faith is being tested by heresies, um, Jesus didn't really live on earth. He was a kind of angelic figure. No, no, the incarnation. And again, brought out in some of the creedal statements, I believe he was born of the Virgin Mary. So he, he lived. All the sort of statements in the creed, he was a real person. And so all these kind of heresies teased out this faith. What do we really believe? And so eventually Christians gathered together to form what were known then as councils. And in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, we had what was sort of crystallized was what we now have pretty much as the Apostles' Creed. Um, in other words, the apostolic age, those first inheritors of, of Jesus' teaching and, and, uh, and his sort of first commands to go and make disciples. In that age, they gathered together the, the, the sort of distilled and tested truth of what the church believed into the, what we call the Apostles' Creed. It was kind of confirmed at the Council of Nicaea, and again, it was, it was kind of bolstered at the Council of Constantinople in 381. So you can see it took, it, what's that, that's, that's um, 350 years from the life of Christ for the, for the church. And they, did, they didn't have social media and the internet. <laughs> Things took a little bit longer. But it, it kind of crystallized together. And uh, finally, the creed, including the, the, what we call the Nicene Creed from that first council, was, was kind of consolidated in the council of Chalcedon in 451. And pretty much from then, from mid-5th century until now, the creeds that the Christian church recite now are the creeds that the Christian church have recited through the centuries. So what we've just recited there is pretty much what Martin Luther recited as a creed 
when he uh, was reforming the church in the um, early 16th century. He said this, Christian, Martin Luther, the reformer, Christian truth could not be put into a shorter or more clearer form. So we have, if you like, a, the, the concise, pricey of Christian, uh, the sort of whole understanding of Christian doctrine. And, and our aim, uh, we've got one or two guest speakers coming in over this term, but between now and focus, we want to kind of line by line unpick this treasure trove of truth and reality, to, to feed on it and to feast on it so that I hope by the time we get to focus, we, are, we kind of feel really rooted, girded, strengthened as Christians as we understand what it is we believe and what difference that makes to our lives. So the creed, I believe. Let me just say a little bit about faith and then we're going to look at a, a passage and then I want to talk about adoption. Um, the Bible talks about faith. We're, every single one of us has faith, by the way. Um, uh, it, the question is, in what or in whom? You, you don't have faith in a vacuum. You, you don't encounter someone and say, I, I believe. Yep. In what or in whom? Faith has to have an object. And what you'll find in the New Testament is that the, the, the word is most commonly pistis in, um, in, in the Greek. Uh, it's, they're often followed by little prepositions to denote the kind of faith we're talking about. And there are three Greek prepositions that, that sort of unpack um, the kind of faith we're talking about. And the first little preposition is hote. And it, it, it is just, I have belief in a proposition. So um, faith, hote, is, I believe that's a chair. Because it kind of looks, what, it conforms to my sort of shape and image and understanding of what a chair is. Hote. It's just the, the belief in a, in a proposition. Two plus two equals four. That's hote faith. It, it, it doesn't really impact me. That chair, me and that chair, we have no kind of relationship uh, in any way really, other than just I'm willing to conceive that that's a chair. That's hote faith. The next little preposition is epi faith. And this is where I'm going to rely on the proposition. I'm going to rely on the truth. So um, I, I believe that's a chair, hote faith. And I believe that chair could hold my weight. I've, I've, taken a, I've moved on. Can you see how I've moved on there? I'm, I'm, I'm now going to commit myself. I believe that chair can take my weight implies I'm going to sit in it. And, and that implies that I trust that it will take my weight. It's, I mean, I haven't done any sort of, I'm exercising, I haven't tested the strength of the legs or you know, the, whether the canvas is up to date. So, so that's, that's epi. But the third one, aeis faith, is the one you most commonly find in the New Testament. It, it goes beyond just, I believe that's a chair. It goes beyond, I think it could, I, I trust it will hold my weight. It is, I'm actually going to, it's, it's to rely on, to draw on. So, hote faith, I believe that's a chair. Epi faith, I'm going to sit in it. But now, now, this is A's faith.
And this, this is the faith that the New Testament talks about. I'm actually, I'm actually deriving real enjoyment from my belief in this chair. So just a concept through to leaned into, lived out reality. And what, what we want to do through the summer, uh, maybe not every week, but I think a number of weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll get the, the creedal statement up and we'll say it. And, and the challenge, really, all the way through, that's a little framework for all the way through, is when I say that, am I just kind of joining in with what I know the church generally kind of believes? And I've, I've never really, I'll hold it as a proposition. Let me challenge you. I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now for centuries, the, Christian have, the Christians have held that, that's included in the creed, in this, in this precede form. It's not kind of marginalized. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born, in other words, do I believe in miracles? Do I believe in something that is not normal, that cannot be explained? Yeah, sure, the church believes that, like I believe that's a chair. But do I believe in miracles like I'm, I'm looking to, to rely on them? That, that's, that's the challenge. With all those statements of faith, I believe that Jesus Christ will come again. Yeah, I'm mean, not give intellectual assent to the possibility that he might. No, no, no. A is faith. Do you live like that's going to happen? That's, that's the thing. With all these statements of faith, as we unpack the creed through the weeks, will you go from, if you are at, hote faith, through epi faith, to a's faith? Drawing on that, relying on it. Your, your life will fall flat in some way if this isn't true is what effectively you're saying. Like when I lean back on that chair, if it, if it isn't real, if it won't hold my weight, I'm, I'm flat on my bum. That's the same exercise that we're encouraging, challenging myself, ourselves, together, and through our life groups or triplets or wherever it is we meet to, to, uh, to challenge ourselves with. Up for that, for this term? Good, good. Let's turn to Ephesians. Chapter 1, page 1108, if you're in the Green Bibles or um, one of the New Testament letters if you're uh, on your phone or some other version. Just while you're finding that, two books quickly to recommend. Uh, the Apostles' Creed by uh, Philip Hacking, sorry, by George Philip, um, it's a foreword by Philip Hacking, by George Philip uh, what Christians Should Always Believe, The Apostles' Creed, and this one, I Believe, by Alistair McGrath, uh, Exploring the Apostles' Creed. Two very easy to read, very accessible books, and they're both published by oh no, CPF, and that's IVP. Uh, you can kind of, uh, Amazon or Google or whatever. Um, certainly the Alistair McGrath one, in each, at the end of each chapter, again, if you're life, part of a life group and you want to track this, then um, they've got some sort of references at the back and then small group discussion questions as well for each of the sort of um, sections on the creed. So I recommend those two books. There's loads out there, but those two I've read and recommended. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 through to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Short word of prayer as we sit under this wonderful truth. Lord, that's the truth in these scriptures and uh, highlighted by that creedal statement, I believe in God the Father. We pray your spirit would lift it from the pages and impress it on our hearts and uh, inspire our minds and shape our wills. Lord, change our lives. Equip us. Lord, feed us. Release us to see ourselves as you see us. Enable us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the context for um, culture in general uh, in um, first century. Um, and it would have certainly have impacted the, the Christians and people, just the citizens of Ephesus, as uh, Rome and all the known world in those days compared to now. And it, it's kind of helpful for us to just peel away all our 21st century privileges and securities and to go back to the vagaries of life for many people uh, back then, particularly for orphans. And again, that's a word that it sounds slightly strange to our 21st century ears because not many young people are orphaned these days. Our health service and our health in general means that most adults, most parents um, are able to live to old age and to live to see their children grow up to become adults themselves. But back then, life was a lot more fragile and vulnerable, a sickness or a plague. And frankly, medical science was in its infancy if it, if it <laughs> can be said to have existed at all. So very often, you would have maybe a whole sort of village or community of parents sick and carried off, they're dead. And there you've got a whole load of children almost immediately orphaned. And again, you know, nowadays what would happen is social services and uh, everything else would kick in and we, we you know, the just care, childcare and so on. We, would, we, we do our best in uh, our nation in these times to accommodate for someone who would face such a tragedy. But back then, there was no um, welfare state. There were no 
social services as such. And so when you went to the marketplace, the kind of social gathering on a regular place, you, you would often see in the marketplace uh, people, young people, for sale. It's not, it doesn't quite have the insinuation that the sort of trafficking does today. It's a different context and a different time. Um, but there would be people for sale. And the idea was that orphans in particular would be, be bought. They would have a price on them. Um, and it was called a ransom, which, by the way, just helps our theology when we come to understand what Jesus did for us. He paid the price for us to come out of slavery. And so they would have a ransom price. And the idea was that some philanthropist, some benefactor would come and pay the price and buy the orphan out of their parlor state and bring them into a household, into the home. And they would be a, again, the New Testament translates the word slave. And, and again, we sort of think of shackles and manacles and, and dungeons and so on. But a, a doulos was like a sort of um, home help. You, in fact, some slaves... The doulos actually had, if, if you were in a nice home with a benevolent master, um, head of the household, then it was actually quite a good life. You, you, you were fed your meals, you had clothing, you had a place to... But here's the key thing. You, so you, you, you had, there was hope in your life. You were out of the, the sort of empty horror of, of, uh, of, what would it be, orphanhood. And you had a home. You had a sense of belonging. You had a roof over your head. You had a meal in your stomach. But here's the thing, and, and all of this by way of context for this doctrine of adoption that Paul talks about, the early Christians understood. You, you're living in this house under the, the head of the household, and no matter how full your stomach is, and how comfy your bed is, and how nice the household are, you are still a slave. You are not a son. And the most hard-working and best-behaved slave is still a slave. And the most lazy and despicable son is still a son. You could have a slave who in many other respects is far more worthy than a low-life scumbag son. And yet, the son is still a son and the slave is still a slave. And the slave, the doulos, the home help, the domestic is secure and happy and all is well until the head of the household dies. And then, according to Roman law and the law at the time, what happens to your safety, your security, to your life? What happens? I'll tell you. In terms of inheritance, the son gets everything and the slave gets nothing. It's as simple as that. It's as black and white as that. That's how it worked out in law. Whether the son was deserving or not, whether the slave was deserving or not, matters not a jot. In terms of inheritance, when the head of the household dies, the son gets everything, the slave gets nothing. And that situation, that context, hangs over every single person of the next generation, whether you're a son or a slave. Do you see that? When the father dies, the son knows what that means. When the, the head of the household, the father, dies, the slave knows what that means. Now, I, I say this because 
when Paul speaks about the doctrine, the Christian understanding, the Christian teaching of adoption, it's a life or death matter in first century times. For us, unless you happen to be adopted, you know yourself to have been adopted by parents, adoption is a kind of... Uh, and therefore when we sort of pick up the doctrine of adoption, it's a, sort of a, it's a kind of peripheral thing. It's things like atonement and justification and theologies around Jesus and the Spirit, they're the real stuff. But adoption feels a little bit sort of, well, take it or leave it if you've got a little niche interest. But whether you were a son or a slave, adoption was significant for every single member of the household, every single member of the community. It's all or nothing. Do you see that? So what's Paul getting at when, um, and other New Testament writers, when they unpack this teaching of, of adoption, which fuels the very first statement in the creed, I believe in God the Father. God as Father. And here's where modern medical science really helps us. Paul couldn't have known this because it's only in the last two decades really that we've been able to do CAT scans on the brain. We, we have a far greater understanding of how the human brain works. And we understand now that um, psychologically, and this is backed up with neuroscience, our deepest human need psychologically is to feel safe. I can see, I mean, Jo, my wife, is a, she was a neurophysio. I can see Rachel's a medic. There's maybe other medics here. Um, bat me if I'm wrong, but just according to my research here, one of our deepest human responses is, is fear. The reaction to, am I, to the question, am I safe? And immediately we sense fear, the amygdala kicks in and releases adrenaline that enables us to basically either, you know the, the, the sort of saying, fight or flight. When we're, when we're confronted with a risk that leads to fear, immediately, will I fight this or will I run away? It's a very, very strong, you, you, you can't override that in it. It's deeply woven into our whole human psyche. Apparently, the, um, the, the kind of threat warning system in our whole sort of neurological, physiological makeup, the threat warning system has the shortest circuit. And it, it needs to. Because when we are in danger, we need to react. In other words, our deepest human need in one sense, from, from a human perspective, is to know that we are safe. Try it out. You're in the middle of the road. There's a car coming at 40 miles an hour. You could, there's, a, there's a range of, of awarenesses, a range of, of emotions uh, that you could be aware of at any one time. But, but the number one thing you're going to ask yourself is, am I safe? And you will act in order to make yourself safe. You might be feeling hungry, but that's not going to be your primary concern with a car racing towards you. You might be feeling a little tired, but that, it doesn't matter. The first thing is, let me get out of the way of this danger. Then I can assess whether I'll have a little nap or a snack. It, it's just basic within us. And it plays in to this first world understanding. First century, sorry, understanding. As an individual, am I safe? So when Paul writes here, verse 3, praise be 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, he's effectively saying, praise God who has made us safe. He's guaranteed our safety. We no longer need to fear. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. We belong not as slaves, but as sons. This is a theological phrase, not a, it's not a, um, a kind of a, a gender or sociological phrase. So ladies, you are included. I know you sort of think this is so sexist or so on, but just bear in mind that us gentlemen, we're described as the bride of Christ, so it all evens out. <laughs> I, I, I kind of I'll stick to sonship. I like that the NIV does. Um, it's sons and daughters, it's okay to refer to that. But it, the, the thing about sonship is it plays into the, it, the understanding of inheritance. So when the head of the household dies, the sons inherit. And we have been, Paul says, whoever we are, male, female, Jew, Gentile, we have been adopted, predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God wills it and he's delighted to will it. That we should be adopted. We become sons. We are heirs to God's inheritance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I can put it like this, we're safe. We're safe. Three things briefly. That our adoption helps me to know, to to believe, to That was the chair, by the way. <laughs> to believe. Ah, oh, adoption. I want to believe these three things. First of all, that I'm secure. My adoption helps me to know I'm secure. I'm going to come on to significance and self-worth. But security. As I am a son of God, I am secure. Here's the thing, uh, I'm gonna, sorry I'm not going to be here too long after this service finishes. Uh, we have a son, Luke, he's 19, he's, just, he's on his gap here and he's just about to go travelling. Um, his mates, he's going with a few mates and his mates, I, I don't know how they agreed this, but he's put it, been put in charge of the itinerary. Uh, such as it is. He's going out to the Far East, they're going to, uh, they're travelling, I mean it'll be amazing. But I've got to be honest with you, Joe and I as his parents, there's that little knot in our stomach every single day he's away until, God willing, he comes back safely. And I I don't know, they're going to have a whale of a time. I'm sure they are. Uh, They may get into one or two scrapes. They're going to learn a few things. It's going to increase our prayer life, Joe and I. But here's the thing. (laughs) Whatever happens... And whatever he does, let's just imagine, let's just go to an absolute extreme and he does something stupid and he gets arrested by some police force out in the Far East that don't understand the nuance of Western humour. <laughs> whatever happens, he's banged up in jail. He, let's imagine he commits, let's go, let's go really weird. Let's imagine our son commits a murder. becomes a criminal. Let's just go really extreme. Does he stop being my son? 
not one bit. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can do that can stop him being my son. I mean, I might have a reaction to one or two choices he makes, sure. But he cannot do anything to prevent him from being my son. No, he doesn't, he, no, he doesn't, it doesn't, there's nothing, he can't, it doesn't matter how good he is, how amazing he is. He's no more my son than if he's awful and terrible. He cannot stop. How, when, you, when you know that you are a son, and here's the thing about adoption. I mean, in, in my sort of part, Joe and I, in our pastoral ministry, you know, we come across a, a number of people from time to time, parents, where um, they have had a child that, that kind of wasn't planned. And, uh, and there's a lovely surprise that comes along. But I've, I've heard of surprise conceptions. I've never heard of surprise adoptions. It's a conscious decision. The thing about, and, and again, I know there are sensitive, if there's anyone here who is adopted, I, I know it isn't all uh, necessarily so straightforward as you develop and discover that kind of thing. But here's the one thing you can't deny. That uh, two parents wanted you. <laughs> I love the phrase, uh, adopted. Dad opted for me. He chose us. Did you read it here? In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. He, he chose us in his love. How secure does that make us feel? There's nothing my son can do to stop him being the son that I love. Flip it around. Think about the slave. You, you, you're, you're kind of there. However you look at it, there's some kind of contractual understanding. It began when you were bought out of slavery. I paid for you, therefore subconsciously I'm expecting something. You'll do some chores or you'll only live there or you'll... There, there's, there's a kind of limitation to the relationship. And the slave thinks, all the while I'm good, I can stay here. But the slave in the back of the mind, and this is again the fear, the psychological fear. What if I do something that displeases the master? What if, what if, dot, dot, dot. And it lurks in the back there. You see, if we as Christians live with the mentality of slavery when we come to the Father, we'll never truly know him. Because in the back of our minds we'll always be, am I good enough? Have I done okay? What if he's displeased with me? Because the ultimate what if he's displeases me is, is I'm a slave, I get nothing. My, my, my whole life is tiptoeing towards an empty destiny, which plays its well back to me and makes me feel so insecure now. Have I done enough? Am I trying hard enough? Am I good enough? And I'll never know the answer if I'm a slave. But if I'm asking those questions as a son, it simply means I do not know who I am. Because there's nothing I can do to earn his love. There's nothing I can do to know the safety of his love for me. And the security that that brings. So press in. Press in to the sit, lean, take time to, to adoption means I am, I am eternally secure. I'm, let, let that adoption, let it carry you. Adoption means that I'm secure. Secondly, adoption means that I'm significant. I'm a son and therefore an heir. And, and, and here, how we press into this is as the writers say, it's to practice possessing your possessions. To be who you've become. 
You are a son. You are a daughter. So live as a son or a daughter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, note the tense, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We, um, again, forgive the sort of slightly self-referential analogies, but uh, so in the vicarage, quite a big house next door, so we, there's our family that live there, our sons and daughters, well, our son and daughters, and, um, and then we have a few lodgers, and we love, these lodgers are great, we love them, we've just said goodbye to one of them, actually got married yesterday, um, and um, heavy-hearted, off he goes, and uh, who knows, there may be uh, uh, others coming in due course, but th- here's the thing, they just, they, they, they live like, is it okay if? Do you mind if? They're constantly, out of politeness and deference, they're asking those kind of questions. Our children don't. <laughs> Dad, yeah, I just took 10 quid out of your wallet. Hope that's okay. That's the kind of, that's how it goes. Yeah, it's fine. Ish. <laughs> that's because they live, but in one sense, what I love about that, the presumption, if you like, is, because they, they know they belong. They know they're loved. Imagine if, can you imagine if a lodger, even the most best behaved lodger, someone had been there some time, just thought, oh, Tim, by the way, I, I, saw, I just uh, helped myself to 10 quid out of your wallet. Oh, that's a bit different, isn't it? <laughs> I might just nod like that. And then what's that doing? And then what's that doing? What would that do in you? If I just nod like that, don't say anything, you're going, flip. That, I've overset them up. Oh, no. He's going to rip up the contract. I'm out. I'm out. Wouldn't, wouldn't it? At that, that beginning of fear would rise up. Our kids don't even, they, don't, they just know that isn't going to happen. There might be a discussion. But you see the difference? See how significant a son is, a daughter is, compared to a slave. I know adoption, it is as a metaphor, because obviously... Obviously, it doesn't matter when you are literally adopted by God the Father. So we're employing here a metaphor. And as a metaphor, it is incomplete. It, it has, if you push it to its logical extreme, it is incomplete. And here's where we need to remember that this doctrine, and the creed helps us to remember this, this doctrine stands with a whole family of other doctrines. It doesn't stand alone. It's, it's not just that I've been adopted. I've been redeemed. I've been bought out of slavery. I've been justified by God's... Uh, atonement through Jesus. I, I, I'm gifted with the Holy Spirit. Um, here we are, verse uh, 13 and 14. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. There's the sonship bit. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I have the, the life-giving spirit and the, the work of sanctification, of being made holy, being more and more made into the image of God. All of those things are clustered around adoption as well. They, they interrelate. So the significance becomes more and more real as I choose to believe and to live in my adoption more and more. As I, as I choose to believe that God is at work in me, I, I really press into this understanding of the doctrine and teaching of adoption. And, and, and we'll come on to see how the work of the Spirit means he will bear fruit in your life. Believe it. Look for it in yourself and in one another. God will be and is growing in you as you join his family as a son or a daughter. All the while you, you stand as a slave, God can't do that work of sonship 
But when you say, no, here I am as a son. I know I sometimes get it wrong. I know I sometimes mess up. But that doesn't make me a slave. It just means I'm a son who sometimes messes up. It's a crucial distinction. Just because you sin, it doesn't mean you're a sinner. It means you're a saint who sometimes sins. And you receive the forgiveness that God has given you. And you say, I, I want to come back to enjoying my sonship. It's about core identity. I'm a son. In the family of the father. And that makes me significant. And it enables God to work in us. Again, forgive the reference to, to my son. But um, you know, when, he was, when he was little... A little boy, Joe and I, we summed something. I wonder who's more like, and it was kind of hard to tell. But as he's grown into a young man, there are times when um, just a, a look or a, just a sort of posture, and I've heard now more and more people say, I can't quite see it myself, but more and more people say, Poor lad, they say, Oh, you're so like Tim. Isn't he like his father? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't set out to go, I, I really must make Luke look, look, look like me or have a little glimpse that looks like me. No, he, did, and he certainly didn't set out to. That was the last thing he wanted to say. <laughs> it just happens. It's kind of the gene pool. and It just happens. That there are elements where he, he looks like me. And, and, and God is, whether you like it or not, in a sense, but why don't you go with it? There's a sense where when we go with the Spirit in our lives, we will grow more and more into the likeness of our Father. That's, in a sense, our aim here on earth and that when we, when we know that we are more and more like Jesus it, it fills us with that sense of significance adoption makes us secure adoption helps us to know that we're significant finally briefly adoption fills me with a sense of self-worth I believe in God the Father and I believe, therefore, I'm saying, that I am his son. And I know the safety and security of being like a son to the father. That, that fills me with a sense of self-worth. And not least when I, when I read what Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit. Look at this little phrase. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. His will means God decided to do this. Adoption, adopted, dad opted for me. He chose me. But did you see that little word? Pleasure. In accordance with his pleasure. And again in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. God is pleased to adopt us. Do you know, if you take nothing else away from this evening, chew on that over your bank holiday. Chill out tomorrow. God is pleased to adopt you, to choose you. He's pleased to call you his son. I really recommend Focus uh, at the end of July if you can, whatever, sell your car and get to Focus. It will be worth it. 
a um, couple of years ago, two, three years ago was it, one of the speakers, one of the draws is that we have speakers from all around the world. Bill Johnson is one of the speakers from Bethel Church and there's various other speakers as well. Yeah, fantastic, the pick of, pick of the crop. And um, two, three years ago, uh, one of the speakers was this extraordinary Christ-like man, Father Raniero Cantalmessa. And uh, Father Raniero is the, has been for a number of years now the uh, papal preacher to, or the preacher to the papal household. In other words, he, he's like the Pope's personal chaplain. And he kind of feeds and teaches and inspires the Pope and his sort of inner circle of cardinals. And he, he came and spoke, focuses, he's this extraordinary man, this white, he's got so white hair and this white beard, he was in a kind of, like a, a kind of monk's habit, with a simple rope, uh, sort of um, belt around his waist. And the most unbelievably godly, twinkly eyes. <laughs> and um, his English, you have to work quite hard to listen to him, because his English, he's spoken English to us, but it's not his first language, and his English is, is uh, a little broken at times. And um, he came to the end of his address and he was, he was talking about how God loves us. Just a very simple message in a sense, but very profound. And uh, he looked out at us and, and we're, this sort of, we're in this great big tent of maybe four or five thousand people. And he looks out and he says, um, he says, and now I would like to tell you what I do at Holy Communion. Would you like to know? And we'll go, yeah, we'd like to know. Yeah, yeah, tell us what. He said, I will tell you. And so he tells us about, he describes, and we're all sort of in, sort of thinking, what's he up to here? Just a story for Father Rania, where's he going? He says, I like to go and to take the bread, which is Christ's body, and I have a little sip of wine, which is his blood. And I take the bread, and I take the wine, and then I go and sit in my seat, and I lean back, and I say to the Father, now, Father, you may enjoy me. <laughs> and, and we did a, a bit like we, four or five thousand of us, we all, we all erupted with laughter. <laughs> Father Raniero, look what he's saying to God. He's saying God can enjoy him. And then we sort of went a bit quiet because we looked at Father Ranyan thinking, you know, who do you think you are? And he was just standing there so secure, so safe, so significant. And he just looked with, with loving patience at our sin-stained laughter because he was deadly serious. He meant every word of what he said. And, and, and suddenly he became even more Christ-like as we realized how, how slave-like we were. You see, we were laughing out of this presumption that who do we think we are that we could dare to believe that God might enjoy us? That's, that's slave-speak. I dare suggest that God could enjoy me. Who do I think I am? And, and to see what four or 5,000 people convicted looks like, you needed to be there at that time. Because we suddenly, we went quiet and we realized, he's right. That's what I aspire to. 
I aspire to high points in a service, be it communion or an act of worship, or maybe as I just sit under the word or I, I sit in silence, but whenever it is, whether I'm gathered here or at my office desk or as a walk in the park, but I aspire to get to the place where I can say to God, because I'm so secure in my status as an adopted son, oh God, you're free to enjoy me. Now, I I confess, I am very rarely in that place. When I am, I'm believing in adoption to the extent that I can genuinely say from my heart, Oh God, now you can enjoy me. And all I want to say to myself, and I invite you to receive this as I say it to myself, is that that is what Scripture is imploring me to believe. And that is what we believe when we say the opening line of that creed. I believe in God the Father. Because when I believe that God has adopted me into sonship, I am so secure. I grow in increasing significance. And it fills me with the sense of because of Christ, self-worth it's nothing that I bring to the equation it is all God's grace that he's lavished on us Paul says that enables me to know that God enjoys me and when I know the pleasure and delight of the Lord I am free like no other freedom you can know or describe I'm free to live in In the freedom that an adopted son, a chosen son, a beloved son can only know. To live and move to his praise and glory. I believe in God the Father. Amen.